is the Australian Rescue Podcast. This is the Australian Rescue Podcast. I have a uh, special guest on today. His name is Trevor Lansdowne, and Trevor is currently living in Queensland. I think you have done now for uh, over 10 years, if I'm correct. Yeah, I would have to say 12, 12 to 13, coming up to 13, actually. It scared me when I worked it out the other day. Oh, wow, yeah. Well, (laughs) we've been friends for uh, more than that now, which is uh, great, and uh, it's always good to be able to catch up with you. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Steve. It's great to catch up with you. I think it's been around for a very long time. I was trying to work out how long myself exactly a while ago I've known you. But anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, so, for, thanks for inviting me along, I think. Oh, that's all right. Well, we'll wait and see till the end. Um, but look, I, I just want to touch and, and find out your story, I guess, because uh, we've we've been to numerous jobs together. Um, you know, we've, we've seen lots of things. I mean, you went away mm. and then... Um, you know, it's like, oh, this is such a Trevor job. Where is he? Oh, he's not here anymore. Okay, right, fine. Oh, um, <laughs> but oh, good to say or not? Yeah, yeah or not, I know. it's it's good things. It's all right. Um, but let's let's find a little bit about you, I guess, to uh, be able to place you a bit of context and uh, yeah, what you've been doing, I suppose, um, mm, in okay. in the last I don't know several years. So you're you're a Melbourne boy by birth, essentially. Born in Pakenham. Always been a Pakenham boy. Um, you probably knew me more of a Nanagoon person, but my family was definitely a Pakenham family. Yeah. So oh, well, let's let's put it into context for people who don't know where uh, Pakenham or Nanagoon are. Yeah, please do. Um, so uh, Pakenham is probably about an hour southeast of Melbourne, Victoria, in Australia, and uh, Nanagoon's just what, not even ten minutes mm. down the road from that. Uh, continuing west, just in the uh, West Gippsland area of uh, Victoria. Really is part of Melbourne then, our Steve, and I, I could certainly is, yeah. Definitely can say that, and yeah. I can remember growing up in a small country town. I don't know what happened in that country town in the last fifty odd years, but definitely times have moved, haven't they? Mm. It's a lot more people there now. Yeah, so look, we we um, obviously, as I just said, we, we uh, I was born in Pakenham. Um, we grew up in where the Pakenham swimming pool is now. If anybody knows Pakenham, we had a little farm there, and and. Uh, uh, I was the youngest of three children, and there's about 15 years difference between me and my um, older siblings, so a fair bit of difference in there. Um, so, so you did all that sort of stuff. Um, now, growing up in a, a small country town, um, what did your parents do for a, a crust? Well, um, mum was basically a home mother. Um, her great breakaway into her own life was when she actually got involved in uh, scouting as, as a cub leader, and she spent many years doing that. But my father was really, the best way to describe him, was probably a labourer, I think. He, he really just um, found work where he could. He was a shearer. He worked um, picking spuds down on the career up swamp, um, asparagus, market gardens. I can remember as a kid growing up, quite a young kid, uh, you know, four or five-year-olds going across, going away with Dad with work and into shearing sheds and going out on market gardens, all those things that you wouldn't be allowed to do these days. But Dad was definitely, you know, really a, a, a person who grew up on farms and, was, and, and, and worked that way all his life, a very hard worker, and, and uh, just found work where he could find it and, and provide it for the family. Which I guess then, being a, um, a farmer as such and a labourer, he'd be very good with his hands, which somehow he managed to find himself in uh, a fire brigade as well. Yeah, look, I think it was just a case that it was um, it was always around fire brigades. I think he was involved in fire brigades before uh, fire brigades, or, or as what, what people would know, the country fire authority is now, uh, as it is now. Um, you might not realise this, but there's a massive fire service connection in my family. Uh, my uncle, my brother, my father's older brother, is a uh, Queen's Fire Service medal holder, which is equivalent to the Australian Fire Service medal now, which is quite a... Mm. You, a hard award to hold. Um, I think there's something, I, I think we added up something like um, there's about half a dozen immediate people I can think of in, in my father's family that's got national medals from fire service. Um, and the Pakenham Fire Station recently just actually uh, unveiled a plaque um, out the front of their fire station uh, listing all the life members of the brigade and um, I saw a photo of it and winked through, and I think I was related to over three quarters of the people on in one way or another on that plaque. So, wow, that's a yeah, good we, legacy. We, we had a big service background, yeah. Mm, wow. So you've obviously followed in your father's footsteps and everybody else's, and um, what what led you to do that? I, I don't think I had a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't. Um, 
I, I couldn't see um, any other way that I could do it, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, it, it, it basically was just... I can remember... Um, Dad, Dad was always a member of what we would call Tumut Brigade, which is a little rural fire brigade just um, um, west of Pakenham, in an even smaller town than Nanagoon. Um, but he was never really a super active member. I remember we could go down there maybe once a year, and the old Tumuk Fire Brigade, their firefighting truck was actually a trailer. Mm. A local um, farmer would uh, bring the the Fergie tractor out and hook it up and hook it up and, and drag it onto a fire. You know, totally yeah. high speed response vehicle, <laughs> as you say. But um, I can remember those days. And then uh, Tumuk finally got an old Austin fire truck, which I think every fire brigade, rural fire brigade in Victoria, had at one stage in their life in their career. And and it sort of went on there. But I can't remember Dad ever being really active. Or turning out to many fires, but it was just a part of something that he did. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. My brother, my older brother, was a member there for a while, and I think he was even a lieutenant for a few years. But I, once again, I can't actually remember him ever going to a fire. So that's you know just another thing. But I do remember the big thing when he actually had one of the CFA radios in his car. That was a pretty, pretty whiz bang thing for a little while. And that was only a very short time from memory, but uh, and it moved on. But Dad probably got more involved in the fire brigade. Um, when we moved to Pakenham, uh, not Pakenham, to Nanagoon from Pakenham in 1980-odd. Um, and we worked for a guy that uh, we worked on the farm and lived on the farm. And, and I basically had a designated employee, that was my father, that would become a, uh, the, the member of the Nanagoon Fire Brigade and be part of the Nanagoon Fire Brigade. And I can remember going down with Dad to the fire station and, and hanging around. And I can remember Dad actually getting involved in some of the fires. And I can, one thing that sticks in my mind, first big fire that I can remember in the local area was, uh, and I had to check this up, I had to do a Google on this to see, get my dates right, it was in January 1982 at the Nanagoon North Fires. Mm. I can remember Dad being totally involved in that and, and being out for a day or so fighting those fires. And, and at that stage, I was also involved in the Pakenham Fire Brigade as a junior in their running team. And we were actually down at Pakenham when those fires started uh, for running training. And we, as a, our juniors got pretty much involved, not so much in the firefight, but back at the fire station, helping at the fire station, doing things like refilling fire trucks with water and doing hoses and all those type of things, which was pretty pretty cool stuff, I thought. And that sort of pricked my interest. Mm. And then, And how old were you, know, you at that time? I would have been uh, about 14 at the time, 15, 14, just going on 15 mm. at that stage. Um, not long after that, we moved from Nanagoon to Pakenham in Roger Street. You might probably remember, that's probably where you first started to know me about that stage when we were in Roger Street, I think, if I might, Steve. Yeah, Roger Street's but, um, not a bad street. <laughs> yeah, that's the one, yep. But, um, you know, that's when Dad also transferred across to Pakenham Fire Brigade and actually joined me at Pakenham Fire Brigade, quite interestingly enough. And that was in the lead-up to the summer of 1982 and 1983, which uh, certainly become very famous in, for fires uh, in the local area of Pakenham and particularly up at Beaconsfield and Cockatoo. Well, more than just there, um, the term known as Ash Wednesday not only uh, affected a lot of Victoria, but also in uh, South Australia as well. Mm. Yeah. So I guess uh, most people listening, if uh, you're an Australian listener, well, the, you'll know exactly what we're talking about um, from the bushfires, uh, 16th of February, 1983, uh, in particular this, this Wednesday. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were around. I was about a year and a half old, so I particularly don't recall this kind of event. Um, but you were there and you remember it. I do. Um, I do. I, I, it, it's sort of something. I know when you first talked about doing this podcast, Steve, um, you said, oh, memorable events and stuff like that. And I really struggled to pick stuff out. Um, mm. For better or worse, I sort of do a job and put it away. And, and hopefully I'm not putting it away into a cupboard that's going to come back and bite me one day, as we talk about. But, but I try and put it away and put it aside, and, and that didn't, that's finished with, and let's move on to the next step in life. But for some reason, probably for lots of good reasons, 83 sort of stuck in my mind pretty heavily. Um, it was the first decent fire I went to, I think. Um, well, I think about it, definitely. Mm. Um, I was very young at the time. Um, there was a little quirk in, in the fire brigade back in the day. You could actually join... You weren't allowed to join a rural fire brigade till you were 16. 
but there was a little tweak, little trick in the whole process where if you if you got your parents assigned up to mission piece of little mission piece of paper, and I still remember the piece of paper. Yep. You could go and join the rural fire brigade and start turning out a little bit early. I think from about fourteen, I think it was oh, back in the day. That is and young. Was, that is young, and I was fifteen at uh, at the end of nineteen eighty two, and I can remember starting to turn out the grass fires and stuff in eighty two. But by the time Ash Wednesday come around, uh, and I'll give away my age, you know, I was actually 16 years and 16 days old on the 16th of February, mm-hmm. 1983. So I don't know if there's too many 16s fell into place, and uh, suddenly I found myself, you know, involved in this massive big fire and firefighting operation. This um, this particular event you're talking about uh, claimed the lives in Victoria alone. 47 uh, people were killed from that particular event. Uh, I do have the exact figures floating around yep. here. Um, there were nine, uh, six in Cockatoo, uh, which is not far from Pakenham, in the Belgrave Heights and Upper Beaconsfield fires, where you were um, active. Uh, 21 there, and uh, the numbers continue around the state of Victoria as well for uh, just fatalities. Uh, South mm. Australia had numerous ones as well, but up until uh, 2009... Um, that was Australia's worst, most deadliest bushfire um, until then. Uh, but our our Black Saturday bushfires claimed 173 in 2009. So that's uh, that's nearly 10 years ago. But uh, all the same, that's a lot of people's lives lost because of uh, bushfires, which is very surprising these days. Yeah, it was a certainly a day. So yeah, take us through that day that. Um, what happened for you, if you can remember back that far yeah, really well? Believe it or not, I have a reasonably good, solid memory of it. Um, um, I was actually going to TAFE. I'd, I'd finished school. I, I left school at the end of year 10. And I think it was a case that I was told, you've got to go and do something. So that was all right. So I ended up going down to TAFE, and I was going to TAFE at Dandenong. And I can remember coming home early from TAFE. Now, I can't remember we come home early because it was so hot or we, if we come home early because it was just a, a short day, but we'll come home early. And I remember coming home on the train back to Pakenham. I can remember going through Beaconsfield and Officer and all those things and looking up in the hills and watching these massive big smoke columns down the rays. I went, oh, that's interesting. Mm. So I come home and as soon as I got home, I ditched my stuff and headed straight down to the fire station, as you do. Yep, yep. And uh, by the time I got there... Oh, yeah. uh, both our fire trucks, both our rural fire trucks, tankers, and they were, we had two of them back then, um, were already out. They were gone. Um, the only thing left in the fire station was the urban pumper, the front-mounted pumper. And our fire station at that stage was also one of the bases of the Pakenham Group, the Pakenham Subbase. It was called Pakenham Subbase, the radio call sign. And that was starting to handle some really serious radio traffic. And I remember Janet King in there. She was there, and I, I remember for many, many years the logbook for that day was still in that fire station. I can remember sometimes going in there when I was a bit older, reading over it and and, and, uh, and going over the day, and it really did clear out some of the thoughts in my mind what was actually happening. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, we were down there for quite a while, and, and nothing much was going on. We couldn't really do much. Um, and eventually, we ended up heading home. Uh, I headed home, and I, I, and I don't know if you know Brian Lewis. Brian Lewis was another guy down there, an older guy, about my father's age. he came home with me to have dinner as well. So we had dinner at home. And Dad was there. I remember Dad come home as well too. And Dad started talking about, and I never really heard Dad talk about this before, but he started talking about the 1939 Black, Fri- Black Friday fires. Right. Um, he would have been 17, I worked out earlier today, on those fires. And he also talked about uh, what happened in January 1944 when a similar thing happened where actually a fire ran right up the main street of Pakenham. Now, I don't know if you realise this, there was something like three to four houses lost in Rogers Street and Ahern Road and Main Street in Pakenham on that day. Oh, as wow. the fire actually travelled straight down. And particularly in where you lived um, with your father in that area there, that's where the area where those houses are lost. Yes. And Mum always told a story of how the uh, local minister for the Church of England, this was in the war years, obviously, mm. was well known for hoarding black market petrol so he could get around <laughs> to do his minister stuff. 
And one of the buildings they lost on that day was the minister's shed, and apparently it went up quite spectacular because it was full of petrol. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently a lot of the town folk was quite um, chuffed quietly that that happened. It was sort of they saw it as a payback from God for spinning steel <laughs> <for stealing> petrol, <laughs> if you can understand what I'm saying. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. but that's that's quite an interesting thing. Now, the reason why... <laughs> local up, folklore, it sounds. <laughs> oh, yeah, local folklore. But the reason why I brought that up, Dad at that stage pointed something out about the runs of fires on those days and where those runs of fires happened and down down a certain area and how those fires come out of the hills, back out of the office and then turned right and, and headed into Pakenham, if that makes sense to you, if you, you understand the mapping I'm talking about there. Mm. And me being a 16-year-old that knew everything in the world, obviously... As you do at that age, I guess. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, silly old bugger. You know, later on that night, I discovered something. It was absolutely spot on. Um, the, topog- the topography of the land never changes, and, and the run of the fire was nearly identical to those days. And when I explored it later in years with him, we, we tracked it down. The run of the fire was always going to run where it did run. And, and uh, it, it happened in 39, it happened in 44, it happened, I think, somewhere back in sixty in the sixties as well too. I can't remember the exact dates. So that was that was interesting. It was one of my first realisations that maybe I don't know everything as a sixteen year old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is that uh, was that just like basically where wind blows up and you've got a, a southerly or something, and you get this big long line of fire, and then the wind changes to a westerly, and all of a sudden, the head of the fire and, and the flanks are now well, the flank is now all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You've got that, a massive fire break. Basically, what happened um, when we got back down to the fire station after dinner, um, we got word that there was a um, group of trucks. They weren't called strike teams or task forces or anything like that back in those days. They were just basically trucks coming in from different regions and different areas. Yeah. There was a group of trucks coming in from Gippsland, um, and they'll coming in. And what they said, the description they were given to us, they're coming in with cabin crews only, and they wanted to pick up crew, packing them to crew the trucks. Right. So there's about three or four trucks in there. So I can remember myself and, and uh, Robert Veenstra uh, ended up on this truck from Drew and West. Very young, both young guys. Robert was only about a year older than me. And off we went. And we were sent down into Officer um, to try and take the head of the fire on. Uh, they will put in every resource they could in there. Now, I ended up, we ended up at the top in the Bayview Road. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you can remember that area around there when I was back younger when you when you're quite young but that was all um farmland and um and orchards yep yep if that makes sense Tim. still is it at the uh top end yeah top end that's right yeah well there you go well we ended up in the orchard orchard up the very top of Bayview Road. and as we come down there the fire had already ran down um along the bushland and and basically we done a bit of work to try and keep it off the grassland on the west on the eastern flank which was been an exposed flank when the wind change was coming um, and that was really fruitless. I mean, we, we were just beating the head against a brick wall, you know. We were, you know, you mould out a garden hose to try and put out a, a furnace, if that makes sense. It wasn't yeah. working too well. So eventually we withdrew and pulled back, and um, we pulled back to the top of Bayview Road, and oh, I can't think of the road, the intersection up there, but we ran across the, a local water tanker up there, uh, Ron Cran. Uh, he was very famous for having a water truck, and he would come out at a, at a, you know, a drop of a hat to help out the fire brigade and, and, and shuttle water. And somehow, in this process of this happening, my father ended up on that truck with Ron. Oh. I ended up meeting my father again out there. Okay, And they were at the corner of the intersection. I can remember clearly that Ron had a flat tyre. He was still su- supplying water to any truck that turned up, but they were frantically trying to change this this flat tyre literally metres away from um, the west, the eastern flank of the fire. Mm. I can still remember that. Anyway, so we off we went, we loaded the water and we went into the orchard and we, I think the concept what we were put into the orchard was trying to defend the outbuildings and the houses there in the corner and that's when the wind change happened. Um, and people talk about fires and freight trains and we yeah, okay, whatever. And that day... Well, I think we not only had a freight train, I think it come over, it run us over, backed up and had a second go at us. The noise and, and, and the ferocity of, of what happened when that wind came and just took that flank, it was just amazing. And we went from a minute of 
of, hey, we're doing all right defending this, to, oh, my God, we're trying to defend ourselves and to keep ourselves alive, if that makes sense. Yep, yep, yep. And this was back before we had heat shields on trucks. This is an old Austin fire truck, and the sides of the Austin fire truck around the tank where the crew stood was little bits of 25 mil pipe. And let me tell you, 25 mil pipe doesn't hold off much heat. No. <laughs> Just between you and me. No, it wouldn't. Um, so we, I can remember being under that truck with a hose trying to defend ourselves and trying to stop it from running over us. And through this thought process, the only thing I could think about at that stage was Dad, the old man, being what, 100 metres away from us with this truck with no ability to defend itself and no ability to move because it was changing a tyre. Yeah. And we're going, jeez, hope the old man was okay. You know, mm. and um, we eventually exhausted our water. And the other thing I remember distinctly were the apples in the orchard. And you ever seen roast apples, roasted apples? Yes, but not not on a tree. Yeah, well, we had roasted apples on a tree. Wow! And I still remember that. That's something that stuck in my mind, mm. just to realise just how bad it was. Like cooked or black. But, Charred or oh, oh, they just roasted up like like you would get them out of an oven. You know, just that wonderful brownie roast apple colour. Wow. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, so we, we got out of there. Um, we withdrew back down to the highway. Now there was a garage across the road, the highway. Keith Rawson's used, to it, yep. and Keith was a member of the Officer Fire Brigade. And somehow that sort of become a bit of a rallying point. There was trucks coming in everywhere. And there was a hydrant out the front. They set a hydrant in there. We're all filling water and we're swapping stories and trying to get our senses and trying to figure stuff out and trying to get things sorted out. And I can remember the house next door to Keith's place was actually between Keith and the post office in Officer. And they had a garden tap. Mm -hmm. And I would hate to know what their water bill was because this garden tap was just constantly running with guys trying to wash their eyes out, filling water bottles, taking drinks. I think for the half an hour we were there, and, and obviously for every bit of time before and after, this tap was just absolutely running flat out. Mm. And the people in the house were caring about it. They were quite happy about it. They were encouraging it, you know. So we sort of gathered our thoughts a bit there for a little while. And, and uh, the other thing you've got to remember, Steve, back in those days, we didn't have all these aims and, and incident management system, ICS stuff and everything like that. In fact... There was a guy called Ivan Smith who was trying to lead this fire at the Pakenham Group headquarters. And he was... This Pakenham Group headquarters was in the middle of Upper Beaconsfield. And he was in a situation, as people would know about these fires, where he was actually defending the Group headquarters from burning down rather than trying to run the fire. Mm, gosh. And at that stage, there was two revelations Ivan come up with. One maybe putting a group headquarters that commands major fires in the middle of the biggest fire zone of the area probably wasn't a smart idea. That was probably the first thing he came come up with. <laughs> yep. The second thing he came come up with was, I think, trying to manage 120 to 150 trucks on one single radio channel wasn't really working. No, I can imagine. And this is, this is the days before alphanumeric pages and... Things it's just maybe you, you haven't even got a, a, a tone only pager even at that time. No, no that was back in the day. The, the pages come along a lot long after that. This is a fire uh, siren days where the the thing just potter. goes. Yep. And telephones wake, and fire sirens. Yep. Yep. Wake the whole town at two a.m. Who cares? That's just. And you're just trying to grab airspace on the radio to say something on the radio. Mm. Hope for Christ that somebody heard you. Um, it was in that context. So. And if we can digress from my story a little bit, it was in that context that at that stage where we lost two crews up at Upper Beaconsfield. Um, and and um, there were snippets of radio traffic from them and even Mayday calls and, and so forth that really just were lost into the clutter and no one really done much about it or couldn't do anything about it. Mm. So that was sort of a pretty big thing and if we want to we can go into that story a little bit too because there's a bit of a connection with the Pakenham Brigade in that as well too. Well yeah I did want to touch on that um, mainly because um, well one of the gentlemen involved I I knew um, not Mm -hmm. terribly well but at the same time um, you know from the church background that I've got um, Mm -hmm. 
Ranald Webster was a, a member there, him and his wife. Um, right. Lovely right. couple. Um, and in his older age, I remember, you know, him having a little badge that said visually impaired or whatever. But his mind was still sharp as. Um, Randall wasn't but, involved in the Upper Beak fight. Um, his incident and... and um, how many incidents? Okay, at, let's. At, at, it was we lost two crews. We lost two crews at Upper Beaconsfield, and we lost another crew at Cockatoo. Right. But interestingly enough, there was a Segway connection between the two. Um, the area they were working in, top of Upper Beaconsfield, had several trucks went into that area to try and defend the the flank from. Um, um, from the eastern, the westerly change, the eastern flank, and that was trying to defend, they were literally trying to defend the township of Upper Beaconsfield, trying to build a control line, so basically when the change come, not if, but when it come, Upper, the township would be as protected as possibly can. Mm. And the trucks in there that was working up there was actually three of the local trucks, was the uh, Packenham, Packenham tanker, um, the um, Cockatoo tanker, and the Upper Beaconsfield tanker and the Narry Warren tanker. And basically, not earlier in the night, early in the afternoon, a second fire started up, totally separate fire started up in Cockatoo. And the Cockatoo tanker at that stage basically made a decision to break away and head back to defend their town. Who can blame them? Yeah. And that tanker was replaced by one from Panton Hills. So basically... The last ditch effort to head in and, and uh, to head into the fire ground, uh, and I, I wasn't there, so I look at the stories, but I knew the guys pretty well, and I, I heard the story numerous times. Mm. Basically, Panton Hill led off into the in his little convoy to try and uh, secure the top end of the fire before it headed into St George's Road, and which would have put it into town. The second truck in this little convoy was a Packenham tanker, and the third truck was a Nary Warren tanker. Now, the difference between the three trucks was both the Packenham, both the Nary Warren tanker and the Pandon Hill tanker was a 600-gallon tank in the old school, or, or 3,000 litres. Yeah. And the Packenham truck was only a 400-gallon or 2,000-litre truck. Mm. Now, basically, the Packenham truck obviously used its water a little bit quicker. So the Packenham truck withdrew to refill leaving only the Pandon Hill and a Narry Warren truck. Right. Now, when the Pakenham truck was back refilling, they were actually using cement mixers to carry the water. Okay. That's when the wind change hit. Uh -huh. And they had wonderful stories of how the cement mixer airlines burned out and broke away and crashed down the hill and all these other things that happened around them. But basically the crew and the Pakenham truck survived, got away with it. And that was the last that was heard of for the Pandon Hill and the Narry Warren truck until the next day when they actually were found, both trucks were found burned out before their crews killed. Yeah. So that was a pretty big deal. Didn't really, I didn't know this was happening where I was. Knew nothing about this. Yeah. At the same time, when the Narry Warren, when the Cockatoo fire went off, the only truck left in the town was the Nanagoon tanker. Jeez, uh, I seem to be, I always go back to Nanagoon. I don't know why we keep going back. <laughs> but the Nanagoon tanker was the only tanker left in left still in station. Mm. So that was the truck that was in, and, and their little van, their little support van, was the one that was set up to Cockatoo. Um, and in that support van, their little support vehicle, which was a little Ford Transit vehicle, was um, Randall Webster and a guy called Eddie Lowen. Yeah. Um, now... Basically, at the same time this was happening with Nary Warren and Pandanil, these guys, the wind change, a few minutes later hit Cockatoo. Now, those guys are heading down, I believe, First Avenue. I really have to stretch my memory here, First Avenue. And there's a bend in the road in the end of First Avenue. And it was a firestorm and the smoke was so heavy, they missed the bend in the road. Mm. And they crashed this van, which trapped both of them. Sadly, Eddie didn't survive. And Randall Webster came out horribly, horribly burnt. Um, and, and once again, we didn't know about this. At this stage, we were just hanging on for our own dear life down the bottom end of the fire, if that makes sense to you. Yep. Yep. 
I uh, I was reading on uh, this particular event, and um, they say that uh, Ronald climbed out of the vehicle, um, and he thought that Eddie was right behind him. Um, mm. Obviously, that wasn't the case, and um, but in doing in getting out, um, he sheltered from the the thing. He just ran, just ran mm. like crazy to get out of the um, the area um, to where I think uh, somebody met him um, with some water or a tanker or something or other or or similar to be able to um, hose him off, um, mm. and it's just. The uh, the story of him uh, is just amazing on its own. Um, given the oh, nature of his 100%. burns, they say that he had uh, about eighty percent burns um, to his body, and oh, gosh, about a four percent chance of living. Yeah, and in many ways, he became the face of that fire. He certainly um, did. In many yeah. ways. Yeah. You know, in, in many ways, he's massively um, swollen and, and burnt face. Um, Great the uh, the newspapers for many many weeks afterwards. I, I still remember that, but um, yeah, definitely. And, and and in later life, he done a fantastic a lot of work in that burns unit, helping people through yeah. that whole scenario that he went through. Um, you know, the, the um, compassion and, and and the resilience of the man cannot ever be understated. No way. Mm. It's so true. Oh, that uh, and that was what I was going to say. I mean this. Yeah, you know, I, volunteering his time, going in and sharing with the burns victims with a photo of before and saying, "Hey, here I am." Afterwards, um, I mean, I think I probably met him ten years after, and yeah, mm. well, he probably still had the scars. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nothing like he looked, you know, like from what I recall, you couldn't tell as such. No. And, and, and look, you know, it's it's something I, I knew Eddie. Um, I wouldn't say I, I knew him very well um, in, in later life. Um, and I guess we'll make you talk about that later on. But but later on, I ended up um, transferring back and moving to Narnagoon when I was married. Um, and and uh, we bought a house and we lived in Narnagoon. So I had a lot to do with the Narnagoon Fire Brigade. And Eddie still had a lot to do with the Narnagoon Fire Brigade in many ways. You know, and, and he was always mentioned and, and uh, not Eddie, sorry, um, Randall um, yeah. had a lot to do with it, and Eddie was always never forgotten in that, that station. Never, never forgotten. Never. Um, so, you know, the impact lasted for years and years and years and years and onwards. And, and people that weren't even born, you know, even younger than yourself, know the names mm. um, because of that memory. And I think it's pretty important, really. I agree too. Um, and I think. Um just just on that, down there at Narnagoon Fire Brigade, there is a, a real sense of family as well because there's a, a memorial plaque uh, for Eddie, um, mm. you know, just, just remembering the legacy that he did leave and, and had from that station, that's for sure. Now, I, I don't know if you realise this, but his sister attended every brigade dinner. Oh. No, I didn't. Afterwards, you probably didn't know that. I did not know that, no. I think you, I think you probably had a few of our brigade dinners and you wouldn't have known that. Mm. But um, Judy Collins, yeah, 100%. She was there at every brigade dinner, and she was always around the brigade. That was his, that was Eddie's sister. Yeah, so, that's wonderful. You know, it's, it's, um, yeah, the legacy for sure there. But, yeah, look, we, we digress a little bit. I guess what happened What happened with Ash Wednesday after that with us, we, we ended up heading towards, I can remember this today, after going, after officer, we ended up heading back towards Hackenham. And this is steered on my memory because... At this stage, everything Dad had told me had come true. <laughs> so <laughs> I really honestly believed that we had lost Pakenham. We had lost our town mm. in that wind change. And I can remember driving over the top of the hill. There's a hill just before you come into Pakenham on the Melbourne side. And I was greatly amazed and surprised to see the battalion still surviving. Surprised. I can't understate the surprise and the shock and, and probably the pleasure that I saw that our, my town and my home was still there. Yeah. Um, and we ended up that night in the back blocks of Merinol trying to chase and fire. Um, and a couple of little funny things happened up there, but anyway, that's, that's another story again along the way. But that was my Ash Wednesday. That, that turned into maybe four, five days mm. of work afterwards, blacking out, taking care of breakaways. 
it wasn't until the next day that we come in and, and both stages at Pakenham Hall Community Hall was set up as a feed station and it was also becoming a bit of a community station where people were dropping off donations of clothes and stuff for people who had lost everything that we <clears throat> we discovered that our little fire at at, um, at, um, at Upper Beaconsfield and Cockatoo, we thought that was the that was the big fire, and it was only then that we discovered that we were just one of, of many many fires, and and then we only then then the realization started coming through, and the stories started coming through that we'd lost crews, mm-hmm. and just how many people had died. Um, I, I I had people um, that I went to school with that was killed in that fire at Upper Beaconsfield, mm. and other people I went to school with that. That lost everything, lost their homes, lost everything. Um, a mate of mine um, that we were, you know, we were you know, always knocking around together, and, he, and his girlfriend lived in Leopard Road, up at the top in the Tumuk Valley. And I can remember going to his girlfriend's house maybe several weeks, not many, many, not not long before this fire, you know, or maybe the time's compressed, but it didn't seem that long. She'd lost everything. There wasn't a skerrick left of the house. wasn't You, you, you were hard pressed to find anything in the house. It was all gone, totally gone. So you know, it's you know the, the visions I have in my mind. I, for whatever reason, I've been I've been to a lot of fires since then, and a lot of different incidences. But those visions, I don't think I've, I've ever lost. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm looking at them in the back of my mind now. Um, I can remember. You know, picture this: I'm only a 16 year old kid. I can remember being up on a crew working up the top in the Leopard Road, I think probably the following day, lifting tins, lifting sheet metal, the, you know, the corrugated iron, mm. and wondering what we're going to find underneath them. Yeah, this is uh, way uh, before forensics and uh, police blocking off towns and saying yeah. you can't come in like they did uh, in Marysville, no. for example. I think we learned a lot from that fire. Um, the CFA, is, uh, you know, for, for better or worse, whether you love them or hate them, but they, they brought in, um, they, they realised they lost a lot of people um, off the back of those fires. People, a lot of people hurt. And they, out of that grew the, uh, C, what they call the CIS, Critical Incident Stress System, where they actually brought in a lot of counselling and support for firefighters. Um, the AIM system in Australian interagency um, emergency management system and, and, and the ICS system um, come out of that, and, they, and people like Ivan Smith got together, and Ivan Smith was one of them, and we, it's got to be a better way they're doing it. And they went over to America and looked at what they were doing and brought their system back and Australianised it. Mm. There's a lot of things come out of that fire, and I think probably the difference between that and Black Saturday in, in 2009, there was two differences I saw. The 83 fire was a pivotal moment in the history of firefighting in, in changes. 80 in, in 2009, we didn't lose any crews. We didn't lose firefighters. All our firefighters came home. I'm not saying that we didn't lose public. Yes, that did happen, and that's very sad, huge loss of life. Mm. But really, the systems that they used, we only didn't have massive changes. We just refined the systems. The systems we had were pretty robust, and they upheld on that day. And those systems in radios and sectors and, and, and all those type of things you can go back and find that the genesis or the beginnings of that back in in Ash, in Ash Wednesday, nineteen eighty three. Yeah, well that 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 makes sense. Um, and I mean, when you have a catastrophic event like that, something's got to change. Um, so for Ivan to go back and you know figure out and go right, what do we need, or, or bring back the aim system, modify it, um, which. You know, I've been out on jobs before and people go, oh, we've got to run aims at a rescue and this, that, the other. I mean, for a simple car accident, you're not going to do that. It's just ridiculous. Um, but for when it scales up and you've got, you know, crews, you've got strike teams, you've got this, that, the other, interagency, mm. you've got to have a system that works. And not only oh, yeah. on table, but in reality with different comms and channels and different communication levels and the works. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, hundred percent. I would like. I'd be fascinated to revise history and, and see what we could have done back in '83 if we had some of these systems in place. Mm. Really, I, honestly, I, I think we could have got a better outcome because of it. You know, simplistically, we could have got a better outcome. Yeah, I, I think. And and you know, you talk to the old boys that that ran, hit, ran the fire that come out of uh, Bird's Paddock that turned into the Upper Beaconsfield fire. 
there were several moments they believe, you know, <clears throat> I remember them saying to me, there were several moments where they believed they could have pulled that fire up if they had the resources and, and, the, and the structure in place to get the resources to them in time to do it. Mm. But would have, could have, should have, um, you don't really know, you know, unless you you could put that, you know, re- revise history and redo it again. Um, and I'm not certainly wanting to go through it again no. <laughs> to find out whether it works or not. But, but yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting. It's something that I've thought about a few times. I wonder if what would happen if we had a, if we, in 83, if we would have lost as much life and property if, if we had those systems in place. Well, even uh, as you mentioned before, that uh, the, the truck that you guys were in, didn't have you know any of the fire blankets or the the drop down things now that are there no. with the um, um, water sprinkler system that pushes water out and covers the truck. Um, oh, we didn't even need any heat shields. I mean, no, no heat shields. Like, I mean, every fire truck within twelve months in Victoria was retrofitted with heat shields. Yeah, you know, well, we basically just put in sheet metal on the side of the truck so the crew could be behind. Yeah, which I mean, and, and that's the thing. That's that's half the thing of going right. How can we innovate? We've got a problem. Let's fix it. I mean, with real-time firefighting um, alerts and things these days now, with phones or just, you know, you've you've got a satellite that can show you a heat map on the internet, mm. real time. I'm mm. I'm sure oh, they've yeah. got it in the emergency management centres, but you know, any of that kind of thing as well. Um, better forecasting, whatever. Twenty years ago, thirty years ago, sorry, thirty plus. What are we now? Thirty plus years ago, that stuff didn't really exist. It's a bit longer than thirty percent. Yeah, <laughs> close to like forty, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. <laughs> Forgetting how old I am, um, yeah, but, but totally. <laughs> yeah. So look, well, let's let's touch on um, the uh, modern fires as well briefly. We yeah, had the two thousand and nine fires. Now, um, a, a friend of ours um, fought alongside. We've turned out to rescues with him. Um, mm. We've we've done multiple events. Uh, you've been to probably numerous fires. Uh, he's been to all these other fires and, and big events um, in in Victoria and beyond. Um, but just like Ronald Webster, who became the face of the Ash Wednesday bushfires, uh, Brad Waterhouse somehow became the face of the Black Saturday bushfires. Yeah. And, and you know something, I think we were talking about it earlier. The fascinating thing was they would have lived about 20 k's apart from each other. Mm. And that's just so fascinating that these two people in history, you know, different times in history, have become those faces of those fires and, and, and their connection between them. Um, yeah, 100%. And, and, and maybe, maybe it might be time for me to put a bit of context in for the listeners as well too. Steve and I worked together uh, for many years. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it has to be over 10, close to 15 years Um in a very unique situation in, in, in Pakenham and, and Nanagoon area that uh, we had a joint road rescue unit. It was a uh, SES unit and a, and a fire brigade that joined together to provide road rescue for that side of, of uh, Melbourne. And, and I think at, at that, about that stage, I think we were ranked as second or third busiest road rescue truck. Yeah, we were very busy. Uh, team doing something like 100 jobs a year, I think, at one stage in jobs. So Steve and I worked... Uh, alongside each other for a lot of years and we know each other pretty well. We know each other's voices and, and strong points and so forth along the way. Um, so, you know, um, at that stay in same stage was a young fella called Brad Waterhouse came along and I knew Brad a lot longer before that. Brad was actually one of my adventurers. I was a venturer scout leader. Venturers are 14 to 18 year old scouts for people who don't know. Um, he was one of my adventurers when I was a venture leader. So I had young Brad and his sister through venturers and, and uh, we got to know, this, know him and his family pretty well. And a few years later, he, he got a little bit older, obviously, as we all do, and he popped up at Merinol and ended up in the fire brigade. And and then Brad started, you know, got interested in doing road rescue and he started coming down with us at Narnagoon and, and packing the MCS and helping out and working on the road rescue truck. And I was a very good operator, Brad was. I, and that's my impression of him. He was a very practical person and a very good operator and, and only surpassed by the fact of how good of a firefighter he was because he, he was a, uh, a landscape gardener so he understood lands and, and plants and, and, and uh, that really translated to what he'd done in his firefighting. Um, I ended up, I think I went to Sydney with him in um, 2000, 2002 on one of the trips up there. when we yeah, A couple of deployments and things for the big fires. Yeah. Yep. Big fires and, and the northeast fires and, and things like that, and 
Yeah, and and then lo and behold, um, by 2009, I'd moved to Queensland and was a bit of a spectator on the sideline up here watching it all happen back in Victoria. And lo and behold, here's this very famous picture of a firefighter sitting on his haunches, on his on his uh, on his knees, uh, with a BA air tank in between his legs and his hands in his face, and uh, absolutely exhausted. Yeah, showing showing become the face and and the emotions of the of the whole day. I think it really that one picture encapsulated the entire day. Yeah, so much so that it uh, went all around the world. Actually, on you had CNN pictured it on their front page, uh, the BBC, um, like nearly every major paper uh, website of newsworthy stuff. There was Brad, and um, there was Brad. The interesting thing, though, was I found out years later, like we all sort of got excited and went, oh, look, there's our mate, you know. But um, it it really took a toll, I believe, Um, the unwanted attention um, on him. A lot of people wouldn't know that um, Brad actually passed away just just had over 12 months ago um, from a very aggressive cancer. Um, And luckily enough, I um, I was very, very fortunate. Brad actually come up and... um, after telling me he was too sick and everybody saying he can't move and everything like that, he actually turned up on my doorstep for my 50th birthday party. It was one of my greatest 50th birthday party present I had. And we actually had a few long talks in the evenings and, and obviously Brad was was uh, scared of what was happening and he, he knew he, he didn't have much longer to live, I think, or not think, I know, and mm. he was scared of that and he was scared about what was going to happen. And, and so forth. But we did talk about that, and um, he hated that picture. He hated the picture. Mm. Passionately hated the picture. And he freely admitted by that stage that, that he, he was suffering a massive amount of post-traumatic stress from that incident, from that fire. And if you look at that photo, if you really look into it and, and look at what that photo is about, you can see the genesis of that post-traumatic stress. That was the moment it all was happening for him, if that makes sense. Yeah. That was where it all struck through. And, and I know Brad, and, and Brad tried his heart out that day to save every property and every bit of land he could. And I know at that stage he just walked away from the fact that he just lost a house. And that was really impacting him on the eye at the moment. That photographer found him in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, it was only later in his life, later years, several years later, that he started to accept it and understand what the photo meant and what the photo meant to a lot of people. And he started to embrace it then and only then. Yeah. Yep. No, totally agree. And it, um, it's not an easy thing. I mean, going through any of these fires, we, as we know, from uh, doing car crashes and various... You can't save everybody. No. Um, and no. As, as uneasy as that is sometimes... That's a, a sad fact and a reality, um, you know. It is, it is, it is, it is. And, and, and you know, you and I have been through a few and and, and to put a, a further picture onto the uh, connection, um, Steve's father is also involved in the road rescue. Yeah. And uh, we spent a lot of time together um, and Steve's father being a, a minister. It's a bit like the family um, show, this one. Yeah, a bit like a family show, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, know, I remember I can sit down with Steve's dad, Bruce. I can remember lots of times, and I'm not, and, and you know, Steve knows this. I'm not a super religious person. I went to Catholic schools and those things, but you know, I'm not super religious. But no, I can remember having lots of discussions with with your dad about things that were very nice and nasty, and and uh, he was a very practical man, Bruce, in many ways. <laughs> And he would say the things the way things were, and, and he would just put it, you know, he spit on it, and, 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 and it really helped a lot of us out in that regard. But yes, I, I think, um, you know, sometimes it, it, it's just, it's overwhelming sometimes what hits you. Um, and you've just got to deal with it, and, and hopefully that you've got a good bunch of mates that stick with you and hang on to you and, and work you through it, work through it, and stand by your side. Well, uh, and that's that's half the thing, isn't it? I mean, we go through all these things, and um, yes, there are some some nasty jobs we all go to. Um, but what do you do when you get home? You, you you go to bed, and you I can't sleep. So what do you do? You ring somebody up. I can't sleep. Yep. All right. Well, yep. let's let's have a chat. You know. 
Um, and I was pretty lucky back in that era too, Steve. You remember my wife, Carolyn, she was actually involved in the brigade too, turning out to a lot of these jobs mm. too. So I was lucky I had someone I could come home and talk to. Yeah. Um, not everybody had that, you know what I mean? I think you would have experienced that a little bit too yourself, wouldn't you, with, with Dad? Because you actually had somebody there that you could talk to actually knew what you're saying well that's that's exactly right and i've uh, touched yeah. on this on other uh, episodes as well but uh, it's you, you can have uh, look and i remember going put it this way i remember going to a, a job where a, uh, a concrete tilt slab came down on somebody mm. and uh that was up that's still up there with one of my top nasty jobs don't get me wrong but yeah. When you have clinical people come in and want to debrief you and all this kind of stuff and, oh, tell me how you're feeling and all the rest of it. Well, the last person you're going to want to talk to is somebody who doesn't have a clue about, let's be honest, any rescue events or anything. Mm. Um, They're purely clinical in, in their knowledge of everything. And you want a peer person that you can talk to, somebody who's on your level, who's been there, who's done that, who knows exactly what you're going through. And so, yeah, you're right. So with, with Dad, him and I, we, you know, talk about whatever and this is going and on and all can, that. If I can take you back to that moment, I, I know that. Mm. Uh, by that stage when that job happened, I'd already moved to Queensland, if you can remember correctly. Mm. Uh, but can you remember the fact that you actually phoned me and talked to me about it? <laughs> Did I? <laughs> right, <Yeah>. I... <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> no, you probably don't. But, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, that that's all credit to you, Steve, that you, um, you you reached out and talked to the people that you could talk, that you wanted to and felt comfortable to talk to. And, and all credit to you to, to talk it out. I, mean, I think that's a big, important thing to do. Yeah, well, it's true. Think, Something we do you know, need to do sometimes when we yeah, yeah. go through And stuff. I think, you know, if, for the people who listen listening here today, I think, you know, obviously there's... I, I, a lot of these people here are, are emergency services workers and in the audience. I think it's a, the message that maybe from this discussion at this stage is, is to say uh, you're never too big to talk about it um, and find someone that you can confide in and trust and, and, and open up, whether it's a counsellor or, or, or a mate um, that you can relate to. Mm. Don't, don't hold back. Just you've got to do it. You've got to do it for your own own benefit and, and the people around you, your loved ones around you. Yeah, uh, totally agree. Well, look, um, we were going to talk about, that. Oh, I guess we still can touch on it. There was one job that we both went to. Um, you've probably got a better, better memory of it than me, um, mainly because I was just trying to half run the show. Uh, but we both went to a job years ago where we um, had a, a, a car into a tree. And it was a, a fairly lengthy job. And um, I guess the short version is um, a passenger drivers straight into a tree and sort of bent bent the car. But um, <laughs> it's an interesting one because yeah, I don't know if you realise it was actually the last road rescue job I'd done in Victoria before moving to Queensland. Ah, there you go. And probably that's one reason why I do remember it. Mm. And by some, you know. Uh, parallel universe of the way things work, I guess. Um, on that day, we both found ourselves in, in in the left seat, as we call it, of our respective appliances, didn't we, Steve? We both ended up as the crew leader, as, as the officers in charge. Short of, version of is you get a vest appliance. and you're in charge. Yeah, just what That's you right. want. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, I do remember that one. It was, uh, I remember it for a, a number of different reasons because um, it was... One it was working with you, uh, obviously, was one reason, and it's not a bad thing. Um, I can remember for the difficulties of it, and I can also I don't know if you can remember halfway through the job the heavens opened up, and I've never been so wet in my life. I don't think <laughs> at a job. Um, yeah, um, yeah, uh, it was certainly a difficult one. And, and, and to give you give the listeners a bit of a picture, the car had actually hit the tree around about the B-pillar mark on the driver's side. Yep. And the tree was about um, a couple of metres off the road. But what was interesting about it was the road was sloping. The, the, the land was sloping away from the road. Yeah, it dropped down, still, big angle. Yeah, dropping away. And the car was still connected, literally, as you say, wrapped around the tree. 
and the driver's side wheels were probably about a metre off the ground. Oh, yep, at least, yep. At least, maybe more. And the passenger side wheels were still on the road. Yep. And it was the most frustrating job I think I've been to because everything we tried, we just couldn't get purchase. Yeah, one of those um, painful jobs. And I can remember the woman in the car, she was trapped by her feet and there was nothing we could do to make space to push the car away from her feet because the tree was there. Mm. Um, and I think at even one stage, I think we, we between us, we even went for the old you shall never do trick where a steering wheel pull back in bad old days it used to happen. Yep, we, we even did. actually affected a steering wheel pause. The last time, I could, it was the only time I can remember in the last 20 years of ever doing a steering wheel pull that just to try and get the wheel and try to make a bit of space to slide this woman out. And even that didn't really give us the room that we needed to get her feet out. No, not at all. Because uh, if I recall, we actually had two two uh, big low-pressure airbags underneath the car that uh, supported that. Yep. Um, yep. And in the end, uh, after trying numerous things, um, we actually winched the car out, mm. um, back up onto the road almost. Uh, I think we had an Ambo in the vehicle with her. Uh, they're all covered. Yeah. Um, I do remember that, yeah. And I, I distinctly I remember that, though, because we all know the golden rule. If there's a yep. line under tension, you don't step over it or anything like that. And I remember <laughs> I remember there was a policeman who I got cranky with because yes. he stepped <laughs> over it. Um, As we took load on the car. Yes, I remember that. I remember you, you um, yeah. scolding yeah. the policeman who fogged oh. off into the corner. So. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I never saw him again at that job. I don't know why. No, anyway. He wasn't. You knew he was in the wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I can, I can, the whole thing was we were there and, and I, my, my recollection is that you and I sat down, we had a big discussion and we said, well, what are we going to do? The only way we're going to get this car off this woman, and that's probably the best way to describe it, mm. is to have the space uh, between the, the A-pillar, base of the A-pillar, so we can push it out off her feet. And the only way we're going to do that was get the tree. So we had choice A, remove the tree, which was quite a large tree. Not going to happen. happen. Or we have to remove the car from the tree. And if we did that, what really concerned us was the car could fall into that little V, that void. And drop down. And you could cause some pretty serious damage to the upper parts of the person because, Mm. you know, suddenly you're going to, you know, jam the roof of the car into the tree even worse and potentially hit, hit the person in the car. And we, we, I can remember the discussion, we actually involved the local, the Ambos there, and we just said, well, this is our issues and this is what we've got to do. And, and, and what do you think? And they just said, well, we've got to get her out. So if that's what you say we've got to do, we've got to do. Mm. And the Ambo, I think, we didn't want anyone else in the car because we were scared we are going to hurt someone. And the Ambo refused to leave the woman. Mm. And he said, "No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay with him. We're going to take what comes, what happens. Just, just get the car, get winch the car out." Yep, that's <laughs> what ambos do sometimes. But uh, look, yeah, those that. are the days yeah. though, then where, where things are a little bit different, I guess. Um, where extrication techniques um, have since changed a little bit, um, evolved just, just a little bit better. Whereby you know nowadays we're not actually trying to pull people out the side specifically. Um, mm. Uh, you know, now we're we're trying to keep them straight as possible, the spine management, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in those days, not quite as much of of that. While it was happening, it wasn't a you go in straight, you're coming out straight. You know. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, things have changed. It was, things have moved on. Yeah, I think moves things have moved on. And and interestingly enough, um, as you would know, um, I've, since I've moved to Queensland. After me saying, "Well, that's my fire service career gone," and lost it well and truly. Um, um, about can't two years help after yourself, I moved up you? here, I, I um, oh well, I picked the wrong lawnmower guy. I think who turned out to be the local captain of the local auxiliary brigade in Queensland, where in the town I live, and suddenly here I go again. <laughs> A little bit different um, for the people who don't know in Queensland. Um, we have um, a urban fire service and a rural fire service. Why, under a single command, there are two separate services where the rural service, and now it's also joined up with the SES, are a volunteer service. 
and operate not dissimilar to CFA brigades in Victoria in many ways in the way they fund themselves and they operate. And where the Urban Fire Service in Queensland is actually a, a either a paid full-time or paid part-time where auxiliaries are paid uh, per hour for their training and responding. Um, and the crews are obviously a little bit smaller and so forth around the place because of that. Um, but uh, suddenly here I am back in the fire service in Queensland and, and where we had a model in Victoria where road rescue was done by a rescue truck that travelled a 20-minute or 40-minute eccentric circle. Um, it could be 20 minutes before the rescue truck is. All the urban trucks here in Queensland are equipped as road rescue vehicles. Mm. Um, it's an interesting scenario um, where the guys who operate the tools, so I'm not saying they're, they're not competent, but I'm just saying that they probably haven't got as much experience as what you would see as a rescue operator in a truck that does 100 a year. But the rescue, as a rule of thumb, is effective, affected a lot quicker and, and a lot more um, basic level than what we used to see in Victoria. But by the time we rolled up in the, re- in the dedicated rescue truck with another half a dozen fire trucks and a, a cast of thousands there, if that makes sense to you, Steve. Yeah, totally. It's uh, just a different way of doing things, but uh, I, I do have to agree that uh, if if you are doing it a lot, well, obviously you're going to get better. But if you're a typical uh, rural unit, uh, whether or not you're in Queensland or you're a country town rescue unit in Victoria, um, and you only do two jobs a year, well, who's going to have more experience? Obviously the one's doing the more jobs. That's, that's just how it is. To compensate that, we're in the area I am, we have a, um, a truck down the road of it, a 20-minute, 30-minute drive away from us, uh, which is, of course, on the Valima truck, which is a heavy rescue. Um, and that comes out with two guys, two tech rescue guys who's got a lot of experience. So, you know, we, you know, if, if we get into a situation where, where we require some technical support or, or extra heavy gear or extra equipment, that truck's not far off our tail. And by the time we stabilise and, and, and gained entry, the thing's usually parked up and suddenly two blokes will walk up and say, what do you got, guys, or what do you need off us, or what can we help you with, or, hey, guys, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> That's really bad. Let's, let's stop and have a think before we go any further. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, I think the system I'm working with in Queensland now, I'm I'm, um, I'm very comfortable. I think it's, 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 a, it's as robust and as good a system as anywhere in Australia, if not the world. Yeah. Well, it's good to be able to see and have different experiences from different locations. I've, that's what I've discovered as well. Um, you know, y- you go to one place and they do it this way. You go to another place, they do it that way, and you go, oh, that's interesting. Okay, cool. And we, we mm. t- take away what you can from that. Um, yes. So yeah. and, and I think that's the best way of doing it, really. I think, yeah, it, it is too. I think it, it's quite a good thing. I mean, I'm not saying um, one system's better than the other or, or, work, or wrong or, or, not, or not correct. But um, I think, you know, there, there's merits in both ways that things work. Mm. Um, but um, it, it's interesting to experience both sides. Um, one thing, probably, you don't get exposed as much to traumatic events in the Queensland model where where you're working in the, under the Victorian model with the CFA, SES type system. Well, you're going to hit every car accident in, that, in your local area, in that 20-minute uh, you know, area. You, you're going to see everything. So, yeah, your exposure level's a lot higher. Um, makes you a better operator, but it also leaves you more open to, you know, post-traumatic stress and all those other nasty things that come along with these, with these, um, as, as a sideline to these jobs. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, I tell you what, we could probably keep talking for a lot longer, but um, I'm just going to say. Um, Trev, thanks for um, coming on the show. Um, I think we probably should wrap it up given the amount of time we've taken now. Um, <laughs> but, and if you've made it this far through the podcast, well, thanks for uh, sticking around. Um, <laughs> thank you for thank you for listening to my rambles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Trev, you've been in services for many, many years and uh, your experience certainly shows that. So thanks for uh, joining us today. Well, thanks, Steve. It was good to catch up with you again. Good to uh, swap old war stories again and... and uh, memories some good some bad but yeah it's that great to catch up with you thank you very much no worries well if you'd like to uh know more join us at our facebook group uh just type in the australian rescue podcast or uh search for us as well uh, there's a page there's a group uh, but our website is uh, arpodcast.org and um 
just come in, join us, tell all your friends as well as we uh, grow this uh, resource and we can share our stories and we can all learn from each other. So uh, once again, though, Trevor Lansdowne, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Roger, stand by. Yeah, police have been dispatched to this call. This is the Australian Rescue Podcast. Heavy smoke, I'm out of the top of it. The road's not been treated by paramedics. I believe the violence is still trapped by the This is the Australian Rescue Podcast.